but before we start, we want to open in a prayer. And Lane, would you please lead us? Sure. Lord, we are in awe of your great mercy, uh, that we can come together today and worship you, speak about you, speak your name, learn from your word, carry some treasures. We're often too great to even about. So God, we just ask that you would move this morning, uh, use your word to teach us, help us to know you better, help us to see you more clearly, uh, change our lives continually, mold us and shape us to be more like you, more loving, more kind, more gentle. And we need you, Jesus, and we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so last week we started the book of Hebrews. And uh, in the opening verses are some just amazing statements about Jesus Christ. And uh, so first of all, what is a prophet and what is Christ's relationship to the prophets? First of all, what is a prophet? Someone who speaks for God. Very good. Good definition. So then, what is Christ's relationship in terms of others who have spoken for God? Christ is the Word. Right. Summed up as the Word. Very good. So John 1, 1, in the beginning, was the Word. So ultimate expression, ultimate revelation of God himself. He speaks with full authority of God as the final Word. What is the appropriate response to Jesus in light of the fact that he is the ultimate prophet? Can you repeat that question? What's the appropriate response to the fact that Jesus is the ultimate prophet? Listen to him. Listen. So what would be a couple clues for that one? Okay, what happened there, Dale? Okay, so God himself says, listen to my son. Um, or how about Matthew 7? Um, the wise man and the foolish man building a house on a rock what's, or on the sand. What's the difference between the wise and the foolish builder? Right, so the kind of hearing is not just sound waves in your eardrums, it's the kind of hearing that results in doing, makes us wise instead of foolish. What is Christ's relationship to the universe? Three main things that Hebrews chapter 1 tells us about Christ's relationship to the universe. He upholds it. Okay, he upholds it. What else? Creator. He created it. And what else? Um, it's all his. Yeah, he owns it. So he, he created all things, he sustains all things, he owns all things. That's, again, quite a statement about who Jesus is. And the last but not least, what is Christ's relationship to God in these verses? 
the exact imprint. Okay, good. What else? And Lord, when we're gonna, that's what we're going to be hitting it this morning. Right, we haven't got as far as eight. Just looking at the first three verses. You're right, absolutely right, and we're going to camp on that in a minute. Okay, so, and what does that mean? Okay, so place of highest authority yeah. at God's right hand. And also, he's the radiance of his glory, remember? So if you want to see the beauty and glory of God, you look at Jesus, which is, remember, John 14, 9. He was seeing me. What have you seen? Seen the Father. Right? So if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus, and you will see glory. Glory as the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth, John 1, 14. So any comments or questions on just those first three verses about who Jesus is? Okay. Well, the next section is about Jesus' relation to the angels. Does anyone know what the Jehovah Witnesses believe about who Jesus is? He's Michael the angel. He's Michael the archangel. Archangel. So we're going to see a whole bunch of verses that say that is not right. So in the first century, and still in the 21st century, uh, sometimes angels are given more attention than they should have, and Jesus is given less attention than he deserves. So Hebrews is gonna reverse that. He's, it's gonna focus a lot on Jesus' supremacy to all the angels. So let's start with verse four and five. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today have I begotten you. For again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Good. So why is Jesus superior or much better than angels according to those verses? the scriptures describe his relationship to God, the first quotation talking about he's the, he's the begotten of the Father, and to what angel has that position or that, that name attached to them that they're the begotten. Okay. So, again, just look at how the author says it. He's become much better than angels. Why? Because he inherited a more excellent name than angels. So, has, first of all, he has a better name so what are some things angels are called in the Bible? You think of some terms for that are synonymous with angels? Uh, sons of God. Okay. Hey Moses, you're on a roll and I love it that you're ready. I want to give everybody a chance, okay? <laughs> so, I mean, if you and I were just doing coffee together one-on-one, -on -one, I would want you to answer every single one, but we want to spread it out, okay? Thanks. So, what are some things angels are called in the Bible? Messengers, good. Mike? Ministering spirits. Ministering spirits. What else? Uh, 
And don't feel bad if you're a little rusty, but mighty ones, heavenly host. They're even called sons of God, little s, in the book of Job. But none of them are ever called son, capital S. Only Jesus is called son with a capital S. So that's the argument of verse 4 and 5. Jesus has appeared to the angel because he has a much better name than any of them. Okay? So let's look at Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. And it's kind of midway through a sentence, but otherwise we pretty much have to read the whole chapter. Um, could, could somebody start at the end of verse 19? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Keep going. Verse 20. Somebody read 20 through 21. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Nope. Wrong text. And in Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. Which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of, in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the world. So when you see rule, authority, and power, dominion, what's that talking about? Think Ephesians 6. Heavenly beings, right? Angels and demons. That's who he's talking about. And Jesus has a name far superior than anybody in the heavenly realms. All right. Verse 6. Would somebody read verse 6 back in Hebrews 1? Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Okay, good. So there's a little bit of a question about when God says this. Um, is the again in this sentence just like a, a writer just saying, I'm building a case, and here's another thing. Again, this, again, this. Or is he saying, when Jesus comes into the world, again? And nobody knows for sure. I don't want to die on that hill. So it's either talking about the first Christmas when he brought the Son into the world or when Jesus returns. But either way, angels worship Jesus. Remember in Colossians chapter 2, people are worshiping angels. And Paul, the author of Hebrews wants to know angels worship Jesus. That's who's worthy of worship. Um, let's go to Revelation 5, 11 and 12. An example of that. Revelation 5, 11 and 12. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads of thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So what's a myriad? Anybody know what a myriad is? A big number. So yeah, it's either 10,000 or a synonym for a big number. <laughs> so if you do the math, if it is 10,000, how many is that? Paul's got his calculator out. 
100 million, 100 million angels. It only took two of them to shake the foundations of the temple in Isaiah 6. So what do you think 100 million angels sounds like singing worthy is the lamb? That's pretty loud. Um, so as we come to worship, again, if, if Jesus is worthy of the worship of angels, how much more is he worthy of our worship? So this is from John Newton, just to get us ready for worship in a few minutes. Here then is a pattern and encouragement for us. The angels, the whole host of heaven, worship Jesus. He is Lord of all. We in this distant world have heard a report of his glory and have felt our need of such a savior and our witnesses and proofs of his ability and willingness to save. Therefore, humbly depending upon his promised grace, we are resolved that whatever others do, we must and will worship him with the utmost powers of our souls. So, just good lighter fluid for the fuel of worship. <laughs> it's like, Jesus is worthy. So any comments or questions so far in Hebrews 1? Okay, let's keep going. The author still has a lot more to say about Jesus and the angels. Would somebody please read Hebrews 1, 7 through 9? he says he makes his angels winds and his ministers flame of fire but of the sun he says your throne O God is forever and ever the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions okay thank you so um, if you're familiar with the new world translation which is the Jehovah Witnesses attempt at uh, butchering the Bible to make it say what they needed to say, uh, including that Jesus is just the Archangel Michael. They forgot to retranslate this verse, which is kind of ironic. <laughs> so why is that so significant? What do you see in verse 8 about Jesus? Call him God. Who calls him God? God calls him God. God the Father calls the Son. Remember, it says, to the Son, he says. So God the Father says to the Son, God. Isn't that amazing? That, that would be one they should have translated. Because <laughs> that's, that's enough right there. If God himself calls Jesus the Son, God, that establishes that he is co-equal and co-eternal father and worthy of the same honor as the father um, Jesus is all the fullness of deity in bodily form Colossians 2.9 and this also says that he's going to um, reign forever right or is that the next verse I guess it's coming later that's why so any questions on, on those verses? All right, let's read 10 through 12. Would somebody read those, please? And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. 
They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Okay, so anybody know where those verses come from, or have a note in your margin that tells you where to look for those? Psalm 102. Psalm 102. So let's read a couple verses. <clears throat> Would somebody read 1, 12, and 24 of 102? to the Son, quoting Psalm 102, which is originally addressed to Yahweh, and saying, that's Jesus. In other words, Jesus laid the foundation of the earth, Jesus made the heavens with his hands, and Jesus never changes. Isn't that something? We're not talking about a little carpenter in Egypt, or in Judea, Nazareth. We're talking about God. In the flesh, fully God. Does anybody know what the bulletin board says as you turn that corner heading toward that hall? Anybody notice the bulletin board? Needs to be changed again. Hint, hint. <laughs> Seasons change. So now it's summer stuff, but we'll put on leaves and pumpkins and all that. I don't do this. Brittany does this. Um, seasons change, but, and then it quotes Hebrews 13.8. What does Hebrews 13.8 say? It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yeah, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, and today, and forever, which sounds just like Psalm 102, and specifically Jesus is eternal and unchangeable. So, um, came across a story. Um, anybody ever see the robe? Back in the day, was, they always showed it at Easter time. It's a great movie. Um, it was written by a man named Lloyd Douglas. And um, Douglas said that every morning he had a ritual uh, because downstairs on the first floor was an elderly retired music teacher who was now unable to leave his apartment. So he would go down the steps, knock on the door, and ask the man, well, what's the good news? The old man would pick out his tuning fork, visual aid here, and audio aid, 
and he'd say, that's middle C, there's actually a B flat, but pretend it's middle C. <laughs> okay, he said, it was middle C yesterday, it's middle C today, it, it'll be middle C a thousand years from now. The tenor upstairs sings flat, the piano across the hall is out of tune, but that, my friend, is middle C. <laughs> I love that story. But even better than knowing that, okay, middle C never changes, is Jesus never changes. Seasons, not just weather kind of seasons, but seasons of our lives change big time. Sometimes it's a very happy, joyful time in our lives and families. Sometimes it's a very hard time or sad time. Through all those seasons, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And even without Hebrews 13.8, we have it from God himself saying it's true of Jesus. And it's really from Psalm 102. So we can always hang on to Jesus because he never changes. Any comments or questions on that? pressuring us to take certain approaches to things. And again, if we're tied into Jesus who doesn't and can't change, then we can't change. Of course, we still need to be loving and gracious and all the things that are Christ-like character, including truth. <laughs> He's full of grace and truth. So we don't just be full of truth, grace and we get along with everybody and the world loves us. Jesus said, the world is actually going to hate you <laughs> um, if you stand up for the truth. Oh, okay. False alarm on the gesture there. Any other comments about Jesus not changing and life and culture and everything else does change? Okay, well, let's keep going then. 13 and 14. So, um, anybody know where this quote comes from? I'll give somebody else a turn. What's that? I'll give somebody else a turn. <laughs> it's a psalm somewhere. Psalm, psalm somewhere. Now, we can do better than Psalm somewhere. <laughs> one, one, ten. One, ten. One, ten. One, ten. one of the most commonly quoted <laughs> Old Testament references in the New Testament is Psalm 110. So, what is this imagery of a footstool for your feet? What does that mean? There is a reference to that, but not no enemies are being a footstool for his feet in the temple. What is this about? Subject to authority. Right. So I 
I would do a, a visual demonstration of this, but I don't think anybody wants to do this. Um, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a way of saying a decisive victory. So when the victor's feet, pretend I have a person here, lay on the ground, when my feet are like this on their neck, is there any question who won and who lost that one? Very obvious, right? It's utter domination, utter victory. I won, you lost. Very clear. Okay. So when it says all of Jesus' enemies will be put under his feet, it means Jesus has won the final victory over all of his enemies, including death itself, which we'll see in 1 Corinthians 15. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, and would somebody read 24 to 28? Actually, 23 through 28. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. <clears throat> then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So if you ever wonder where the story of the world is going, that's the end. Jesus wins the final victory, including over death itself. He hands over everything to the Father, and God is all in all. And we all live happily ever after, literally, if we are his. That's where it's going. That's good news. <laughs> uh, Christ wins, and if we are in Christ, then we're on the winning side. And the victory will be decisive. There won't be any questions about who won and who lost that one. Christ wins. So any questions or comments on that imagery? Or the, that text? Pastor, I think the, uh, you mentioned the imagery, right? And just think of that image, right? We have not only the, the, the power of Christ himself, right? Upholding the universe and then the, the creative power of his word. Uh, but, but also these ministering spirits, right? So the ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who have these are myriads and myriads of angels that he is commanding that are under him, right? And that's, I mean, it's truly, you know, a crisis for us. Who can stand against us, against that kind of power? Amen. Good. And, and you did pick up on that phrase, ministering spirits. So what is their role? Um, what, what's one of the main missions angels have in that verse? minister to God's children, right? We have angels taking care of us. Um, Psalm 91, he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. You know, God has commissioned angels to watch over us. And maybe you've heard stories where it's like a very mysterious person helps somebody and then they're gone. It's like, hmm, <laughs> was that an angel? Maybe. Hebrews 13 says some have entertained angels unaware. So it's not like they have halos and big wings and, you know, <laughs> but, oh, that's obviously an angel. 
apparently, they can be just like people, right? So God has given us angels to take care of us. All right. Well, back in Hebrews. You might be asking, well, so what? It's nice to know Jesus has appeared to the angels and that he's the creator and sustainer and owner of all things and equal to God and worshiped by angels. Uh, what difference is this intended to make? And the author of Hebrews is glad you asked because he tells us in chapter 2, 1 through 4. So let's read chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. careful attention therefore to what we have heard so that what we do not so that we do not drift away for if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received as just punishment how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation this salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him God also testified to it by signs wonders and various miracles and gifts and the Holy Spirit distributed uh, of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will so the author says for this reason or therefore which tells us here comes application in light of the truth I've just been showing you about who Jesus is what should we do with that information What must we do? Attention. Pay attention. What, what kind of attention? Close attention. Okay. I think we can go even more than that. Much closer attention. Which suggests they, they have heard about Jesus and have been kind of paying attention. And he's saying we must pay much closer attention. So I have a story. Some of you have heard this one before. But how many of you fly from time to time? Almost all of us. Okay, what's what do you always have to go through before takeoff? TSA. Well, yeah, TSA before you even get on the plane. But once you're on the plane, what's the drill? They go through. Yeah. Safety instructions, right? Exits four and half. Here's how you buckle a seatbelt. Nobody's ever done this before. <laughs> you know, so we know the drill. And guess what? We all do. Check your phone, right, before it goes into airplane mode. Nobody is paying attention, right? Unless you're the first time you're ever flown, maybe you're paying attention. Otherwise, if you've done it at least once, nobody cares. Nobody's listening. But, as some of you know, about 12 years ago, I got on a plane to Minneapolis. I was supposed to go to London. And um, the captain comes on and says... Um, we're going to make an emergency landing in Goose Bay, Labrador, which is a desolate, just ice pack in Canada before you get to the Atlantic. Um, and he said, and don't be alarmed when you see the emergency fire trucks surround the plane when we hit the ground. Guess what? Everybody was now paying much closer attention. <laughs> we watched Sully last Sunday. Have you ever seen Sully? The movie of the guy that landed the plane on the Hudson. You know, when he says, we got hit by geese, we're going to make an emergency landing on the Hudson River, 
They were paying attention. They were sleeping during it the first time around. But if you're gonna land and it's maybe dicey, you are like, I'm all ears. Tell me what to do. I wanna live through this plane thing. That's the kind of attention I think the author of Hebrews wants us to have for what he said about Jesus. And what's the alternative to paying much closer attention? Drifting. Drifting. So you're either paying much closer attention or you drift. Those are the options in front of us. So what does it mean to drift? So the remedy for that is paying attention. So here's a quote. This is at least 60 years old because Lewis died in 63. C.S. Lewis. As a matter of fact, if you examined 100 people who had lost their faith in Christianity, so just plug in deconstruct, okay? I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? Isn't that interesting? So he said that before deconstruction was even a word <laughs> in our culture. But it's addressing that. The, the people that you've read about or maybe know personally who have deconstructed didn't just wake up one morning and say, I don't believe any of this, I'm throwing it away. But yesterday I did. It's a slow, gradual, drifting process. And then one morning they wake up, I guess I really don't believe any of this anymore. Okay. So the author says, you don't want that to happen? Pay much closer attention. Because it can happen if you don't pay attention. Okay. So what does neglect mean? He mentions neglecting this great salvation. What does that mean? What does the word neglect mean? If you're neglecting your health, what are you doing? Not giving it the attention it deserves. Good. Very good definition. <coughs> Not giving it the attention it deserves. So our great salvation deserves great attention. So to neglect it is to say this isn't that great of a salvation or that not important or something that diminishes it. Um, so here's a, another quote from we're on a C.S. Lewis kick here. Here's C.S. Lewis. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if it's true, it is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. In other words, if what Hebrews is saying about Jesus is true, it's infinitely important and worthy of our most careful attention, if it's not true, sleep in next Sunday or go home before church. Even why bother? But don't treat it as if it's just somewhat important. Like it's just this nice little add-on in my life that 
gives me a little, <coughs> eases my guilty conscience or gives me peace of mind or whatever. It's, it's either all or nothing. It's everything or it's nothing. So it's, if it's everything, then we want to pay much closer attention to it. If it's just moderately or less, skip it. Don't play games. So any comments or questions? Do you agree with Lewis on that? Is that true? Well, any other thoughts on Hebrews so far? That's kind of the breaking point. He's going to start a new subject in five. So we've got seven minutes of wide open questions if you have them. Or we can get out early talk. Tanya. I just, the first thing that came to my mind was just like within that context, a trial could be seen as such a mercy. Hmm. Because even if we don't think we're neglecting, there's just, God wants our whole hearts. He wants us to grow exponentially until we're with him in heaven. So often trials pour out grace that maybe we wouldn't have gotten or understood before. We cry out to him in new ways. Um, so I guess just processing trials through neglect. Like, I don't know. I, I think it's like sometimes people will think of a trial as Sorry for the play on words here, both drifting. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so trials might be a wake-up call. You're you're snoozing, you're drifting, and that gets our attention. Like, well, better, better get closer to God here than I have been, because I, I don't know the wherewithal to handle this trial in my life on my own strength. <laughs> I need to get back to God. So it is a mercy at that point. Any other thoughts about? Drifting and neglecting and paying attention. Yeah, it's just clear what he's doing here is in chapter one is he's going back to the word and the word is our benchmark. The word is what says what's true and what's not true. And so, you know, just the point about drifting, we've got to go back to the word, go back to the mm -hmm. word, go back mm -hmm. to the word. It's a lifelong practice, uh, kind of going back to the retreat of David Mathis, of just uh, the, the work, the effort that we we need to do. We can't just expect that that God is going to, God is going to sustain us, and yet there's the work that we do every day to, that God uses as a channel to flow his mercies in our lives, and that's being in the Word and putting mental work into engaging to the words on the page. And, and through that, God God works. But it doesn't just happen. We drift otherwise. Like Lynn said, on the, on the lake, we drift. 
if you weren't able to be at the retreat, one of the images that just still sticks with me is um, opening a faucet. You, you don't take credit like, I made water happen. <laughs> it's, I'm opening a channel for the water that's already there to flow to me, or drink, or do whatever I need to do with water. And so it's like, I'm not doing like something, wow, I get credit because I opened up a Bible today. Like, ooh, aren't I spiritual? <clears throat> like, I'm thirsty, I need living water, and this is where it is. <sighs> Open it up and let it quench my thirst, let it satisfy my soul, let it take care of whatever need needs to be addressed through the word. And, and, and doing that on a regular basis is not just duty, because you're supposed to, because you're, aren't you supposed to be a good Christian? Read your Bible every day. It's, I'm thirsty every day, I need a drink every day. This is where I'm gonna find refreshment. And so, and that will also keep me from drifting. <laughs> like Russ just said, the antidote for drifting is being in the word, being connected to truth. If I start getting detached from truth, I'm a goner, and so are you. Because then we will listen to the lies of the devil or the lies of culture or the lies of our own hearts. And we'll just drift, 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 drift. I'm tying my phone, actually. It's like actually on green. <laughs> so does that mean, like, time to wrap it up? Or? <laughs> I don't know if that was like the alarm or Okay. So any other thoughts? Um, just like this whole idea of, you know, um, you know, God's word and it's a means to us, I just wanted to read a little bit from Psalm 119. Oh, please do. Uh, starting at verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? So seeing, you know, if we want to keep our way pure, walk in the way of righteousness uh, in accordance to God's word, it's the means that God uses to help us to do that. But then, you know, just as I, as I hear all this and, you know, I have these conversations, whether it's together corporately or one-on-one, -on -one, I feel like there's, um, it, it's almost natural to get, uh, some people may get overwhelmed, like, wow, I got a lot of work cut out for me. But I like even in this section, um, going down to, um, uh, what verse is it? Um, verse 10, uh, with my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. So the psalmist, you know, pleads to God to uh, keep him in his word, mm. to keep him in the commandment. So as we uh, go into this and, you know, desire to um, pay attention and not neglect God's word, to pray for his grace to keep us in that and not rely on our own strength. Yep. Um, you know, I think about, I believe it's uh, Philippians 3. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You know, there's that command that we have, but then, um, you know, we get the truth right after that, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do. So in all the endeavors and all the trials and things that we have, uh, ultimately knowing and have our confidence that it's God who works those things in us to do what pleases him. So that's chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2. Okay. Yeah, I love how you pointed out, do not let me wander, which sounds like drift, doesn't it? <laughs> Don't let me drift, Lord. Give it, left to myself, I will drift. Don't let me do it. Keep me from drifting. Keep me from wandering. Keep me in the word. I mean, we're, again, our, our, what did Jesus say? Apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing. Nothing. Including stay in the word or pray or 
walk with the Lord or anything that's worth doing. So, so we are dependent, and that's what prayer is, is opening that valve or that spigot and say, Lord, I need another fresh supply of grace to enable me to do what you call me to do. It's actually what we're going to talk about this morning in the morning message, including Philippians 2, 12, and 13. So good uh, preview. Um, yes? I was just thinking of another um, C.S. Lewis quote from Screwtape Letters that, you know, one of the tactics that the tempters like to employ is warning people against a vice or a sin that they're really in no way, like, tempted to indulge in and really, like, distracting them from the actual sin that they're wandering okay. into. And, you know, like, they'll say, you know, a sentimental age will warn them against the dangers of cruelty um, and, you know, a really self-indulgent, you know, abstain from nothing age will warn them against the dangers of being puritanical. Okay. Um, and I feel like that's almost kind of our culture. Like, I feel mm. like we talk a lot about legalism and not wanting to be legalistic, when in reality, I think, just by virtue of our culture of wealth, like, we're much more tempted to just kind of say, I have freedom in Christ. I don't need to abstain from anything without wondering, like, maybe we should abstain for, like, the sake of our souls and for the sake of our walk with Christ. Like, you know, how easy it is to just cut your and say, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, but without thinking, like, is this feeding me? Like, is this filling up my soul? Is this leading me closer to the Lord? And in that way, I think it's easy to drift because we're so focused on, like, I don't want to be legalistic, but in reality, I think it's much easier to Verse 2, kind of going into 3, really, is a great reminder of just, um, kind of flies in the face much of, like, the modern gospel, you know, we'll kind of tell people, like, oh, you're, you know, your wife's, per- or your wife's pretty wonderful, like, you're handsome, you're rich, you got a beautiful wife, you got kids, like, you just basically got all the ice cream, got all the whipped cream, you're just, like, kind of missing <laughs> the cherry, up, you know, the cherry on top, like, so you just need Jesus, and then you'll be, like, all the way happy. You're, you're almost there, but you're just missing that little bit. But then, two says, you know, the word spoken through angels proves steadfast that every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. So we're like, we're under that condemnation. Salvation is great because we were under God's wrath. We were destined for mm-hmm. some of the disobedience, but we're escaping because of that. everything it's like you know there's nothing below like can't get any worse <laughs> yeah um i hope this won't shock you but this is not your best life now um, and, and jesus isn't just and you'll be happy in heaven too right? get all the good of these this earth and but you don't have the heaven yet so let's add the cherry and then you, now you have heaven too boom you're good to go no our biggest problem is a holy god and the fact that we're sinners. If that isn't addressed before we die, we go to hell and separated from him forever. That's the big problem every human being faces. When that's resolved, everything's, you can't be truly happy unless that is resolved. Um, and so yeah, let's not forget that is the main thing. We need rescue from God's judgment for our sin. Jesus is the only way that happens. And we have Jesus, thank God Almighty, we have this great salvation that he's talking about. And we don't want to neglect that. We want to give it the attention it deserves. 
So we should probably wrap up. And let's close in prayer. Rodney, would you please close? Our, our Heavenly Father, uh, hold us fast. Uh, our, our strength is insufficient for this, but uh, by your might, uh, clinging in our health to the, the anchor of our souls. Keep us from drifting, and uh, give this truth this morning to speak to each one here. And uh, hear and the hearing that causes action, to help us act on this, and that it uh, just dwell on us and guide us through, uh, through the days to come. Uh, praise you in a worthy way.